Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we remember the prayer of Christ that you would sanctify us in your truth and that your word is truth. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that as we look at your word, as we study your word, as we think about the implications of your word, that your work in us of sanctifying us would be advanced, that you would strengthen us, edify us, correct us, build us up to be a people who glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to be continuing in the book of Zechariah today, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, we won't have a PowerPoint, so make sure that you've got a Bible right in front of you. Um, We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 8 today, Zechariah chapter 8. It's the second book from the end of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we can get one for you. We have Bibles here um, out in the foyer. The seventh chapter of Second Kings, the story that you just heard, it gives us a very interesting story about four men, four lepers who laid at the gate of Samaria and they're out there because they're not allowed to go into the city because they are lepers. And this was a time in history when there was such severe famine. If you look back in chapter 6, you'll see that donkeys' heads were being sold for enormous amounts of money for food, and dove's dung was being sold for food. And women were so hungry, they were eating their own children just to survive. You can find all that in Second Kings chapter 6. And so these four lepers start talking amongst themselves and they realize that if they stay where they are, if they stay outside the gates of Samaria, they're going to starve to death. They're going to die. And nobody is going to be bringing them any food because food was so scarce in the land. So what they do is they decide to go over to the camp of the Syrians, the enemy's camp where they might be killed if they go there, but at least it would give them a chance of surviving. They could die if they go over and enter into the enemy's camps, and they will die if they stay put. So they go over to the camp of the Syrians. And so we read in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, so they, <clears throat> excuse me. So they arose at twilight, to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they, had, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Well, isn't that convenient? God makes them hear the sound of Uh, of armies coming, huge armies coming. And so they run for their lives. And so these four lepers find all the food that they could possibly carry, more food than they can possibly carry. They go and hide it. They get so much, they go and hide it. Verse 8 tells us they went into a tent, they ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. 
Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. I mean, these guys hit the jackpot, so to speak, and they had, they had more than enough. But then, then they start thinking of all of their own people and how their people in Samaria are starving and their consciences start working into overdrive. And so they're faced with a dilemma. Do we, do we hoard all this good stuff that we have found do we hoard all this good stuff for ourselves or do we go and share the good news with all these people who are starving to death? So they go back to Samaria and they start telling people of this wonderful news. As we look at the eighth chapter of Zechariah today, we'll see that this is one of the, one of the things that God calls his people to do to bless others. And I think that this story from 2 Kings kind of illustrates the whole point that that God makes through his word in Zechariah chapter 8. Just a little backdrop on where we are in the story. The people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem, had been taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. And that was God's means of purging the idolatry from the hearts of his people. He was disciplining them. Why? Why? For the only reason he disciplines his children, because he loves them, and he wants them to turn away from their idols. He loved them. And as we saw in the previous chapter, they had started all these fasts. The people of Jerusalem had all these fasts during those 70 years as a means of remembering and commemorating the destruction of Jerusalem so long ago. But here they are, you know, like 90 years later, and they've re-inhabited Jerusalem, and they've begun rebuilding the city. They've been rebuilding the temple. And so the dilemma that we saw in the previous chapter here in, in Zechariah was that now they're in a season of blessing, it's, an, it's a time of, of rejoicing in God. It's a time to be excited about what God is doing. And so they're wondering, should we continue this practice of carrying out a sorrowful fast? So they, they send a delegate, a delegate of, of people to the priests in Jerusalem to see if they should go ahead and just plan on continuing the fast as they always have. And the Lord responded by pointing out that their fast was really never for him. It was really never about him. It was always for their own sake. And so it was hypocritical. It had become hypocritical. It may not have started out that way, but it had become hypocritical. And we saw three ways in the the previous chapter, three ways that God's grace is working to transform his people. Just to refresh your memory, number one, the grace of God is working in us to turn us from people who seek to glorify ourselves into people who seek to glorify God alone. Number two, the grace of God is working to transform us from people who are desperately inclined to pursue ritualism into people who practice and pursue righteousness. And number three, the grace of God is working in us to turn us into people who listen to God and obey him. So chapter seven was kind of harsh. It was, it was a little bit of a rebuke from the Lord, so to speak. It was a chastening, a warning against allowing worship to become artificial, allowing worship to become stale, 
and lifeless by pursuing ritualism over righteousness. And this is what love does. Exactly what God did in the the previous chapter. That's what love does. Love warns. Love disciplines. Love doesn't stand by while somebody is pursuing something other than the greatest good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so in chapter 7, we saw an aspect of God's love for his people in the way that he reproved them and really warned them about continuing with this shallow, meaningless tradition. Chapter 8 is going to be a continuation of the response that the Lord gives, and it will reveal yet another thing that the grace of God provides. He, he, He gives. He blesses. We'll see another purpose that God's grace works out in the lives of his people, and that purpose is actually summarized nicely in verse 13. If you have your Bible in front of you, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13, God says to his people, So I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. So I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. That's really the the overarching theme in this chapter. So we start with verses uh, 1 to 3. We read, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, if you were to to look across the span of this entire chapter, you'll see that 11 times in this chapter, and a few times in the previous chapter, we see these words, and and the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, or thus says the Lord of hosts, or something along those lines. We see that 11 times in this chapter, very similar wording. And they're in the text for a very specific reason. Anytime there's repetition, we're supposed to notice it. We're supposed to see what, you know, something important there. That's why it's repeated. And the reason that it's in the text so many times here is for a very specific reason, so that we don't, for one second, think that this is Zechariah speaking on his own authority. This is not something that Zechariah is wishing for. This is not something that Zechariah is saying on his own at all. This is the word of the Lord speaking. We're to see that this is the sure, steadfast, trustworthy word of God Almighty himself. And in this chapter alone, we see the name Lord 22 times. 22 times, the the word Lord, that's translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is his covenant name. So over and over again, we're going to see God's faithfulness here. He declares, I will, several times throughout this chapter. He declares, I am going to do this. I am going to do that. I will this. I will that. Several times. He says it repeatedly. And these are words that are designed, that are spoken to strengthen and encourage his people. He rebuked them lovingly in the previous chapter, but now he's building them back up, instilling in them a sense of hope 
in the fulfillment of some amazing promises, things that on the surface would have looked absolutely impossible. So he starts off by declaring, I am jealous for Zion. He's not jealous of them. He's jealous for them. There's a huge difference. Jealous of means he wants something that they have. Jealous for means he wants them. He wants their hearts. He wants their devotion. He's jealous for Zion. And not only is he jealous for Zion, but he's jealous for her, he says, with a great wrath. And you might wonder, wow, God gets upset? Is, is God mad here? I mean, what, what's going on? Is God angry And the answer, as we saw in in the first chapter, is yes. What's he angry at? In in this context, which goes again back to chapter 1, we see that he's angry with the nations and the people who have oppressed and persecuted his people. Now, that was specifically true for Israel at the time, 2,500 years ago, but is it true for his people today? Does God feel wrath, anger toward those who oppress his people? Is God angry with those who stand against or persecute his people? Absolutely. Second Thessalonians tells us God considers it just to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you. Are we afflicted in our culture? Well, you know, you might look at what's going on in the Middle East and say, not really. But are we afflicted to any extent? You might not realize it if you have your head in the sand, but yes, Christians are increasingly coming under fire in our culture right now. So know this, Christian. God isn't just looking the other way. While the people around you make it difficult for you to live out your faith. God isn't just overlooking it. He is jealous for you with a holy wrath that will be unleashed on those who hate and who mock him and who hate and who mock his word and who hate and who mock his people. And we see all of these things increasing in our culture. No, we're not being beheaded like that. Like, no, that's what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. We don't see that here yet, but we see Christians coming under persecution here increasingly, nevertheless. It's all on the rise in our country. And we can press on knowing that God will deal justly with those who afflict us. God will judge and pour out his wrath on his enemies. And so in light of this righteous and jealous love that he has for his people, we read verse 3, we read, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And we have to understand that this is not because of Israel's great faithfulness unto God. That's not why he's making these promises. We saw in the previous chapter that they're actually struggling greatly with their faithfulness unto God. But God never struggles in his faithfulness toward his people. God is perpetually faithful to his people. 
He's saying that he has returned to be with them. And he's returned by his own sovereign prerogative, in accordance with his own faithfulness to his own eternal purposes. For God to make these promises was a promise to reverse everything that they had experienced up until this point, to restore them completely. When he says, I have returned to Zion, he, he means he's with his people again. He, he's for his people. He's going to protect his people. And while God had allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and the people taken captive to Babylon, things are reversed now. Their protection is sure. Their future is sure. The temple's going to be rebuilt and God's going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem once again. And it's going to happen because God is with them. Through the prophet Isaiah, God had referred to Jerusalem as a harlot. It's from Isaiah one twenty one. But now that's reversed. And God says that Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. In 2 Kings 23.13, we read that Solomon had defiled the mountains east of Jerusalem by building shrines for the Ashtoreth. And thus the mountains were called the Mount of Corruption. But now God says, the mountain is holy. He's reclaiming it for himself. It, it, was, it was dedicated to the Ashtoreth. No, it's God's now. He's reclaiming it. He's reclaiming the city for himself. He's reclaiming the faithful remnant which he had preserved for himself. God is with his people. God is for his people. We continue in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There it is again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. This description is of a land where there is peace and safety for all. Who are the most vulnerable people in a society when there's war? Old people, young people. When you think of war and conflict, You don't think of old people just sitting out in the middle of the street watching the boys and girls, the children, play with one another. You don't think of these types of things happening. You know, the old people are out there reflecting on their youth, reflecting on how they used to be able to do that too, and so much has happened between then and now. So this is a picture of the peace that they're going to experience. Why? Because God is with them and God is for them. He will be her protection. He will be her guardian. Not only will they be safe from outsiders, but there's a spirit of loving camaraderie among them. They're not out in the streets fighting one another. They'll be at peace because God is with them. They'll be at peace, protected from outsiders and loving one another rightly. The fact that Israel was restored to God's faithful covenant favor here has nothing to do with anything other than the sovereign faithfulness of God. Look at your text. Where does it say, well, since you guys have been pretty faithful to me, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to be faithful to you because you guys are being faithful to me. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't even imply that anywhere. No, this is God's sovereign initiative It's his faithfulness to his purposes, his promises, his people. 
As Romans 9.11 says, God's purpose of election will continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is assuring his people that there is a wonderful, amazing, safe, prosperous future for Israel, not because of their faithfulness to God, but because of his sovereign faithfulness and loving kindness unto his people. Verses 6 to 8, we read, thus says the Lord of hosts, again, we're seeing this over and over again, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness." And there it is again, over and over. Thus says the Lord of hosts. We're seeing this over and over again. But what we see here is that this is not something that God is doing. This is not something that God is promising begrudgingly. He's not saying it like, well, I promised it, so I guess I got to do it. That's how we make promises sometimes, right? I promised I'd do it, so okay, I guess I got to do it. No, he says, should it also be marvelous in my sight? God takes joy in restoring his people, in blessing his people, in being for his people. And if the people think that it's marvelous in their sight when God blesses them, the indication here is that God takes even more joy in giving his people his blessing than we do in receiving it. That's pretty cool, I think, when you think about it. You know, we love being blessed. But as much as we love being blessed, God loves to bless us more than we love to receive it. A second time here in verse 7, we see, thus says the Lord of hosts, he says, he will save his people. He will save them from Babylon. He will save them from Egypt. He will save them from the clutches of the worldly system which stands against his purposes and against the name of God. God doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to woo them and persuade them and try to get them to cooperate with me. He says, this is what I'm going to do. This is one of those I will statements that I told you about that fills this chapter. He will save his people, he says. And what else? He will bring them to dwell in Jerusalem. He will bring them into a place where they can dwell in his presence. He will bring them into a place of his blessing, of his protection. God says, I will save my people. He says, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of, of Jerusalem. I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. I will, I will, I will. Not a single one of these promises is contingent. He he never says, I will if, or I will because you did this or that. Not a single one of these promises is contingent upon anything but God's own sovereign prerogative, his own sovereign initiative. If you have placed saving faith in Christ and repented, the New Testament tells us that both of these things originated with God's sovereign initiative. 
If you have repented and placed saving faith in Christ, it's because the Father drew you to Christ, John 6.44, regenerating you, opening, your, opening the eyes of your, of your heart to behold the glorious splendor of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4-6. to This is the free gift of God unto you, given by His sovereign grace alone. Scripture tells us that salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9, and that no one seeks God, Romans 3.11. So how did you end up being saved? Because God sought you. And God drew you to himself, to his son. And God opened your spiritual eyes. That's something that only he can do. And this is a wonderful, wonderful truth that God takes this sovereign initiative. He says, they shall be my people and I will be their God here in Zechariah. That's both the pinnacle, it's the the high point, and it's the foundation of everything that he's promising here, of all these amazing promises that God makes to his people. They shall be my people and I will be their God. It's also the foundation for the promises that he makes in the passages that come. So we continue, starting with verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. For before these days, there was no wage for, for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the, with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Because he is their God, and they're his people, he says to the remnant of Israel who have been there to hear the prophetic voices that were there when the, the foundation of the temple was laid. That's speaking of Zechariah and, uh, and Haggai as well. He says, let your hands be strong. He's saying, take comfort. Be strengthened by what I'm telling you, what I'm promising you. God has encouraged them over and over here in this chapter to keep going in their efforts throughout the book he's been he's been encouraging them to keep going in their efforts to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and he he said it was being done not by their power not by their might but by the power of his spirit working within him within them and he goes on to remind them of the years of captivity of captivity where they had spent in Babylon when they worked hard they worked hard for those 70 years but they had nothing to show for it. There was no wage. They didn't get paid for it. They were working for free. They were slaves. In Babylon, they were never safe. They were never secure from their enemies. But God is saying things are different for all of you than they were for your fathers, for the previous generation. Look at verse 11. He says, 
I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days. He's encouraging them to work joyfully rather than begrudgingly as their fathers probably would have while they were in captivity. Because when you work as a slave, I imagine you do so begrudgingly. But he's saying, that's not how it is for you. So do your work with joy. Do your work with joy as your work is strengthened by my spirit. You know, sometimes, even when you're on the winning team, it can feel like losing. It can feel like losing. Think of Elijah and how he must have felt. At one point, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. He says, God, I'm, I'm looking out here, and I, I'm the only faithful one left, and, and, and they're coming for me. And if you can't relate to that feeling, given the cultural climate in our society today. I don't know what would cause you to relate to what he was feeling. He felt like he was the last person on earth who was faithful to God. He was the oddball. He was the the weird one who, uh, you're so devoted to God. Uh, Everybody else might have thought that they were devoted to God too, and they were devoted to their gods. And so he felt like the last person on earth who was truly faithful to God. And if you look at our culture why stop there? If you look at the American church, you might feel like we're the weird ones. You might feel like we're all alone, like you are all alone. And you might feel a sense of despair. And I wouldn't be able to blame you or chastise you if you felt like that, because sometimes I feel like that too. How many conversations have we had where we we say, uh, am I the weird one here? Am I the weird one in the world these days? Sometimes I feel like that too. And that was one of the amazing things, by the way, that I got to experience at the Shepherds Conference last month. 3,500 other church leaders and pastors who feel the same way that I do sometimes who stand on the authority of Scripture alone against the trends and against the fads and against the desires of the world. And in case you don't realize it, it's not a very popular time to be a pastor who regularly preaches repentance, regularly preaches against sin week in and week out. It's not a popular time to be that. But we have to remember We see how God works throughout Scripture. God always works through a remnant. Revival has never happened by the church adapting to the culture. To the contrary, revival happens when the church faithfully confronts the culture with the gospel and God sovereignly decides that he's just going to bless it. 
Elijah saw nothing but reason for despair as he looked out over the culture in his day. But Paul tells us in Romans 11.4, he says, what is God's reply to him? What, what was his re- reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. Do your work joyfully, knowing that God is sovereign. Knowing that God is in charge. You just worry about being faithful to Him. Obedient to Him. And let Him, trust Him to take care of the rest. When we started this study, we saw that the land was entering into a famine and a drought. God had sent these upon the land to get the attention of his people and so that they would know that when they did have an abundance of food and drink once again that it would have been the Lord's doing. And so he says, the vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. The principle here. The principle here is that we are to trust his promises. Live in light of the reality of what he has promised. Believe that he's going to do what he's promised in his word that he will do. Remember that the fulfillment of these promises rests on him. He's faithful. So the word of the Lord of hosts continues in verse 13, saying, And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. There it is again. Let your hands be strong. You see how uh, those words kind of form a, a set of bookends in this passage, so to speak? So they're doing the Lord's work in the midst of fierce opposition by the people that they were surrounded by. And they were, rightfully, I would say, not, not surprisingly, scared. I think we probably would be too, to an extent. But God is assuring them that though your circumstances might frighten you, He's got it under control. He's sovereign over it all. He's got it under control. Let me ask you a question that I want all of you to wrestle with. In fact, take it home with you and chew on it and think about it and meditate on it. And the question is this. How would your life be different if you were to trust more fully in the idea that God is completely in control? How would your life be different if you trusted more fully in the idea that God is completely in control? And, follow-up question, what are some areas of your life that maybe you try to take control of? You try, but they're not yours to take control of. Areas of your life that you just need to say, this is something that only God can deal with. It's so easy to be afraid to be obedient unto God when the culture that we're surrounded by 
seem so thoroughly intent on standing against God, on standing against his word, on standing against his people. But we have to understand that the more resistant and the more rebellious our culture becomes toward God, the more they need to hear the gospel. As the spiritual climate darkens, there is a greater need for light. I've kept in touch with Garrett and Catherine. And as I was writing my sermon on Friday, I got these words from Catherine. I thought, man, that's exactly what I'm, what I'm going to be talking about on Sunday. She said this. She said, Garrett and I were discussing tonight how you don't really share your faith unless you truly believe it's the truth. And so I wrote her back and I said, do you mind if I quote you in my sermon on that? So we're scared. We, we can be scared to take a stand for Christ, but remember what he said, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority is his. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's sovereign, of, he has authority over it all? Because that is the basis for our boldness with the gospel. God is sovereign. God is in charge. That is the basis for our boldness. He's with us in times of comfort. He's with us in times of affliction. That is the basis for our boldness. So fear not. Whatever your circumstances may be, fear not. Let your hands be strong. He has saved us for a purpose to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world, to be a blessing, to be salt and light to a world that's full of spiritual death and darkness. Verses 14 and 15. We read, For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, Says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. God's purposes are not thwarted. God's purposes are unchanging from eternity. God is sovereign and he will see to it that his sovereign purposes are fulfilled. God was sovereign over the wrath that their fathers had incurred. And he was sovereign over the blessing that Zechariah's generation received. Verses 16 and 17, he says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God's reminding his people, Hey, I'm the one who's in charge here. God's the one who's in charge. He's sovereign, but that doesn't mean that there's no responsibility for anything for his own people. Again, they're to focus on their own individual and and collective obedience, their own faithfulness unto God, their own personal holiness, and leave the results of their work in the hands of God. But they are to practice 
holiness in their lives. They're to obey. Without obedience unto God, without the personal practice of holiness growing in their lives, growing in our lives, our work for the Lord and the joy that we receive from that will fall short. It'll, it'll fail to some extent. If we're not practicing holiness ourselves, if we are not trying to be obedient unto God, our best efforts will only mock God rather than glorify him. And if we call ourselves Christians, we need to be distinguishable from the world. If we call ourselves Christians and yet can't be distinguished in any tangible, real sense from the world, we really need to examine ourselves. So God's telling the people here to check their integrity, keep their hearts and their motives pure, as we saw in the last chapter, do the right things for the right reasons, do it all for the glory of God, do it knowing that he's sovereign, do it trusting him. We have to learn part of our sanctification, a huge part of our sanctification, is learning not only to love what God loves, but it's just as important that we learn to hate the things that God hates. If you think that you can love what God loves without hating what he hates, you're only fooling yourself. God is truth. And so to practice anything less than truth or to love anything less than truth dishonors him. God is love, and yet God hates unrighteousness. We must love what God loves, and we must hate what he hates, which often means making very, very controversial or difficult moral judgments in accordance with what his word tells us and the convictions, the moral convictions that we have because our conscience is informed by the word of God. Our culture hates holiness, by the way. Do you realize that? That's why there's kind of a, a negative stigma on holiness. Puritans, they were big on practicing personal holiness. You know, the, the name Puritan was actually uh, initially supposed to be derogatory. It was supposed to be insulting. Our culture, our flesh, hates holiness. And so taking a stand for moral absolutes in a culture that denies any moral absolutes can be a very difficult task, or it can be a very simple task, depending on whom you're trying to please. Verses 18 and 19. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God says, you've got these fasts, and now it's time to feast. Don't feel sorrow. 
feel joy because God is in control. And this is the answer that the word of the Lord of hosts gives to the initial inquiry, which we saw back in chapter 7, when the people wanted to know, hey, are we supposed to continue with our fast? Here's your answer. And so this serves kind of as a, as a bookend of sorts for the 7th and 8th chapters. God says to them, replace your solemn and sorrowful fasts with joyful feasts. And this is one of the benefits of obedience unto God. You know, all these fasts were filled with sadness, with weeping, with, with mourning. And it's not that there isn't a time and place for that. There certainly is. Of course there is. The point is that if we know, if we, if we truly believe that God is in charge, that God is sovereign over every circumstance that we face, then we know that even difficult seasons that we go through have been there for a purpose, that God hasn't left us alone through those difficult seasons, but that he's been there with us and he's using them for his glory and for our good, whether we understand how that all works or not. God is sovereign over it all. So don't be filled with mourning unnecessarily as you remember a difficult season that you went through, or as you go through a difficult season now. Rather, rejoice. Rejoice because God would not abandon you. Rejoice because God is sovereign over it all. Rejoice because even if you're going through a season of discipline, which all of God's children do, it's because he loves you. So rejoice. Rejoice. Remember that there is nothing that can come against you that God has not either caused or allowed. He is sovereign over it all. I'm reminded of Paul who wrote Philippians, you know, his most joy-filled letter while he was chained to a Roman guard. We'd look at that and we'd say that's like the low point of, of his life, of his ministry. And he's saying, no, through all the, the, the letter, he, gets, he gives this message, no, I'm, I'm joyful. Because while I'm bound, the gospel is not. I'm reminded of how the author of Hebrews instructs us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How's that for counterintuitive? But that's how the joy of the Lord works. It transcends our circumstances. Knowing that God is sovereign and obeying him. Staying within his will gives us every reason in the world to rejoice because the will of God is always, always good. And he's blessed us, even in ways that we can't see and in ways that we might not even understand yet. He has blessed us beyond belief. But God does not desire for us to keep his blessings to ourselves 
So let's wrap this chapter up, verses 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In the centuries between the time that this was written and when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, stepped out of eternity to take on flesh, between those two time periods, many people from faraway countries, countries that were far away from Israel, converted to Judaism. Part of Israel's calling, part of her, her task, her, her purpose was to be a light unto the nations for God. In Isaiah 49.6, God tells Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In, in chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And the result of this prophecy that we see here in Zechariah is seen in the way that many peoples, many tongues from faraway nations came to Jerusalem on Pentecost. From far away not realizing that the long-awaited Messiah had come, had been crucified, and had risen from the dead. And as they assembled on Pentecost, as they assembled on that day, Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, proclaimed the gospel message to them. And God's plan to save the nations through the light of Israel, Jesus Christ, was put into motion. And on that day, on Pentecost, 3,000 Jews, people who had converted to Judaism or who, who were born into it, were converted to Christianity on the spot. And the gospel started spreading worldwide right there. We are called to live, to walk by faith, to do what God calls us to do and trust that he will do what he has said he will do. Walking by this kind of faith means living now, living in the present moment as if everything that God has declared about the past and everything that he has promised for the future is true. God's grace is working to transform his people from being selfish to being selfless, to being a people who would desire to bless others. God blesses us in order that we may live lives that please him. And one of, the thing that, one of the things that pleases him is when we use what he's blessed us with to serve and bless others. And we bless others first and foremost by sharing the gospel with them. By sharing the gospel with them. By, by telling them 
that there's a divide between them and God apart from Christ. We tell them that God has promised that a day of reckoning for all sin is coming, but that God has promised that all who will repent of their sin and place saving faith in Jesus Christ will be saved on that day. And we leave the results of that work in God's hands. Knowing that you and I have a better chance of convincing a snail to sprout wings and fly than we do of convincing a blind man to see. But God can cause a blind man to see. It's been said that there is only one crime worse than murder in the desert, and that is to know where the water is and not tell everyone else. If you are in Christ, it's because God sent someone into your life to share the good news with you, to share the gospel with you, and God used that message, that person who brought that message to you, God used it to open the eyes of your heart. And he gave you saving faith to place firmly in Jesus Christ. And he also blessed you with the same message that saved you. He's blessed us with this message to share with others, to bless others with. We can't save anyone, but we can plant seeds. We can't save anyone, but we can tell the world where to find the living water that gives everlasting life. We can tell the world that without God's grace, they will perish in their sin. But that Jesus offers the hope of forgiveness to all who will place saving faith in him. This is what he calls us to do. This is why we are in the world. To share this good news. This is our purpose. This is why we exist. This is why we're not in heaven right now. It's why we're here in the earth. This is the purpose for which he has us in the world. And his sovereign authority his providential care and his loving kindness toward us are the basis for our boldness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. And we thank you that you've shown mercy unto us, drawing us to your Son. Knowing, Lord, there is nothing good in us, and yet you love us enough that you would send your Son to redeem a people, to take their sin upon himself and to take your wrath for that sin upon himself, giving us his righteousness. Father, teach us. Teach us to see the beauty of your mercy. 
Teach us to see your grace working in our lives. Teach us to see how we've been blessed. And convict us, Lord, when we don't desire to bless others. Teach us to do that. We pray for opportunities, Lord, to bless others, to share the good news with others, to tell people where the water is, that they may behold you, that you may open their eyes, that they may behold your Son in all of his glory. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over it all. Teach us to be faithful, knowing that you are in control. In Christ's name we pray. It was so much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.